Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Tonight's show is presenting Fernando Pessoa, 1915. This is the first of two shows on Fernando Pessoa, perhaps the greatest modern Portuguese poet, who proclaimed himself greater than Luís Vaz de Camorche, author of The Lusiads, an epic fantasy of the adventuring, marauding, slaving nation, published in 1572. And in a like manner, Pessoa strives to better, or at least equal, another so-called national epic, that of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass, imagining himself the fulfillment of Whitman's Poets to Come, a new brood, native, athletic, continental, greater than before known. Can any poet actually back up this kind of megalomaniacal claim? At the very least, Pessoa did demonstrably contain multitudes. And principally a trio which he called heteronyms, of which there are well over a hundred. Essentially other written selves, named Alberto Queiro, Ricardo Reyes, and Álvaro de Campos. If Fernando Pessoa is the greatest Portuguese poet of the 20th century, then he is rather the four greatest Portuguese poets of the 20th century. To guide us on our own voyage of discovery into the mind and life of this circle with no center, we're joined by Richard Zenith, acclaimed English translator of Pessoa's poetry and prose, and now author of a monumental biography titled simply Pessoa, published earlier this year by Livright. Our music throughout is from Chopin's Preludes, Opus 28, performed by Maria Joao Pires. Like Pessoa, Pires was born in Lisbon, not quite a decade after the poet's death. She's been called a pianist without a trace of narcissism, among the most eloquent master musicians of our time. In the introduction to Fernando Pessoa and Company, a book of English translations of Pessoa's poetry, Richard Zenith compares Pessoa's work to these preludes, which have been said to be something more like remnants than beginnings, like works that had, quote, been realized to the point of divine perfection, after which they had fallen to the ground and broken into pieces, most of which were lost irretrievably, unquote. We'll center today on 1915 and Pessoa's public coming out as Whitman's poet to come. In the pages of the modernist journal Orfeo, which published only two issues, Pessoa presented his static drama, The Mariner, signed by Fernando Pessoa, which can be said to reveal the entire project of his life's work, and also several poems by his most vital heteronym, Avro de Campos. We'll pay special attention to Maritime Ode, which appeared in Orfeo II. At over 900 lines, it was Pessoa's longest completed poem. Throughout, I'll share selections from the pieces under discussion, they will be edited, compressed, for time. We begin with the problem of biography. What's in a life that's worth writing about when the life is about writing? And now, presenting Fernando Pessoa with Richard Zenith on Interchange on WFHB. How do you approach a biography of a man who, I think, mostly lived in his work or in his thoughts? Did it give you pause to think about it as a like a full-blown biography? What is a life of this kind of man? 
Well, I have to say, initially, I was I was very worried mm-hmm. because there is a, a, a lack of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, his father died of tuberculosis when he was five years old. His mother uh, remarried a man who um, had been a ship's captain, but then was appointed Portugal's consul to Durban, which at that time was an English colony of South Africa. So that's where Pessoa went with his mother when he was seven and a half. And he, so he had most of his education spent nine years in South Africa. And so he had all the schooling in English. And there, there was a trip in the middle of all that where they went back to Portugal. So Pessoa has a fairly active childhood. Mm-hmm. But then when Pessoa goes back to Lisbon in 1905, he's 17 years old at that point, And he rarely goes out of the city, uh, much less the country, until his death. And, and then really not much happens on the outside. So I was wondering my God, how, how write a biography about, about such a, such a figure. And so I, I certainly never expected a biography to be a thousand pages, <laughs> but so it, it was interested in so many different things yeah. and, and had such a rich uh, inner life. Also, it's true that I, I do give a, quite a lot of attention to contextualizing. Pessoa lived in a, a fascinating period, mm. born in 1888. Portugal was a monarchy. As I mentioned, he was in, in Durban in South Africa, and that was at the time of the Boer War, uh, and Pessoa was there at that time. Then he comes back to Portugal, and the monarchy is falling apart. A king is assassinated, and then in 1910, finally, it becomes a, a republic, but it was a rather dysfunctional republic for you know, a decade and a half. And then a military dictatorship comes into power in 1926, and then Salazar arrives on the scene a few years later and becomes a dictator who was in power for, for a number of decades. And of course, there's World War I happening. So it's, it's a fascinating period. And, and it all bears quite a lot of Pessoa because Pessoa was uh, always writing about politics and uh, had you know, many many ideas and conflicting ideas about that and about the places where he lived, Portugal and its history and its destiny. So contextualization is particularly important for Pessoa. We're going to focus on 1915. I, I thought this would make sense simply because I found it a fascinating year. I think it's the end of chapter 35. It says, uh, in 1915, Pessoa and his literary friends, along with the unreal Avro de Campos, would finally bring out a magazine. He had feared that a literary magazine might go unnoticed, but this one, on the contrary, fell like a bomb on the Portuguese House of Letters. It turned out to be really a fascinating year in terms of what Pessoa produced it seems to me maybe one of the greatest years of his literary production. Um, so I wanted to focus on that year and see what we can uh, uncover uh, and uh, characterize Pessoa through that one year. And then as you and I had discussed, we'll, we'll talk about another year uh, next week as well. And before we get to that literary bomb, you mentioned uh, World War One. there. This is a war of, of massive death and it's not much of Portugal worries about or it's not really involved in, right? I mean, not in 1915. Right, 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 right. Um, and however, uh, then it would eventually get involved in the war. Mm-hmm. Spain, on the other hand, its its only neighbor and uh, the peninsula remained neutral th- throughout the war. But, but Portugal, for strategic reasons, some leaders felt that it would be uh, advantageous for Portugal to join the war. And then presumably they felt that the allies would win. And Portugal would reap some benefits mm-hmm. from that. Pessoa, 
uh, was always very skeptical of Portugal's participation and became very critical of that participation, which I think he was right. I mean, I think it was uh, ended up being rather disastrous. Portugal got received a loan from from the United Kingdom, mm. uh, which was kind of a trade off for them. Uh, there were a bunch of German ships in Lisbon's harbor, so that Great Britain wanted some of these ships for the for the war effort. So Portugal seized the ships, and a trade off was they got this large loan, and then Portugal uh, began to get up an army to send to Flanders in France and to to enter the war. But it ended up being a, you know, a very costly venture. So they spent much, much more money than than that loan. Hmm. And then when Germany was supposed to pay reparations to all these countries, however, Portugal never never got much. Portugal was a rather dysfunctional republic. So it was uh, hoped that by participating in the war, they could prove themselves, you know, the country could prove itself to be a player on the world stage or on the European stage. And one other thing uh, was Portugal still had colonies uh, from that you know, vast mercantile empire that they'd had in centuries past. They still had uh, five colonies in, in Africa. And by participating in the war, that was a way of also uh, guaranteeing recognition of, of Great Britain and the defense of Great Britain of that, of what was left of the Portuguese empire. Now you mentioned like this. This is uh, something uh, Pessoa criticized, of course, was critical of. Pessoa was not by any means a, a pacifist. He he thought that you know, war could be uh, justified. However, in this case, Portugal was not fighting for anything of its own. Right. And as for the uh, Portuguese colonies, Pessoa was in his way an imperialist. Yeah, in those days, practically everybody was. Empire was you know, considered a good thing by, by, by most Europeans. Of course, you have the Austro-Hungarian Empire, various empires, the Ottoman Empire. Uh, many uh, Europeans lived under the rule of, of empires, actually. And then they had all their these empires. You know, they had divvied up Africa and, and had all these colonies in, mm-hmm. in Africa, as well as protectorates and so forth in, in Asia. But Pessoa, although he was an imperialist and ha- had this mindset, he didn't have much use for the Portuguese colonies. He, he questioned whether they were really worth preserving. Um, he had his own a very different idea of empire, which was a, a cultural empire. And in fact, in 1950 is when he first developed that idea. So what was the idea? Portugal was a small country and therefore couldn't even hope to have a, a military empire as, you know, say, Germany could or, or Great Britain could. But he thought that there could be a, a renaissance, something similar to the Italian renaissance, but now spearheaded by Portugal and through through its culture could dominate in a certain way, the, you know, right. the rest of Europe and, and even the world. Right. It was a very poetic idea. <laughs> it, it was one that Pessoa wrote a lot about and, and, and thought a lot about. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is presenting Fernando Pessoa with translator and biographer Richard Zenith. This first of two episodes focuses on Pessoa's breakout year of 1915, when he published several pieces in two issues of the Portuguese modernist journal Orfeo, pieces signed as Pessoa and pieces assigned to Álvaro de Campos, the heteronym Zenith calls the most restless, extravagant, and prolific. Fernando Pessoa, 
again, this is a good section of the book because it does detail this kind of, I think you term it a spiritual imperialism or something of that nature. But, you know, Pessoa, I think, tries to defend or defends, I guess, uh, a country like Germany that has the culture that it has, that it has a right to sort of advance its culture. And I'm not sure if that's a defense of violent, uh, you know, overthrow of other countries or not, but it's a defense of a particular kind of uh, world culture that deserves to be what dominant in the world. Uh, so in a sense, as you talk about him perhaps not caring necessarily about colonial Africa, it's because there's no culture there, you know, no no need to take culture there, etc. Well, that's an interesting question. Well, he, yeah, he certainly didn't feel too much the need to take culture there, you know, take European culture there, which is not to say that he was concerned about preserving African culture. You know, so was very uh, European in his in his upbringing. The school he went to in Durban, there was only white children who went to the school. Mm-hmm. He received a very English education. So one could argue that he thought it was best not to interfere, perhaps in, 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 in certain cultures, unless you had something to offer. So I don't know, maybe the, maybe the idea of imposing European culture, inflicting whatever, European culture in, in African nations. So it doesn't seem to really have pronounced himself on that on that question. Maybe he wouldn't have been so opposed. Mm-hmm. But in in terms of Germany, he, f- he did admire German culture, you know, the philosophers, musicians, Beethoven, Wagner, and so forth. Again, this is all part of this you know, rather poetic idea that has to do with his, his imperialism, that Germany because of this culture, did have the right to spread that culture, even through war. However, I said Pessoa, but but actually only part of Pessoa thought that way. <laughs> Pessoa in, invented a, a heteronym in uh, 1915. His major heteronyms, you already mentioned, Alvaro de Campos, and there was also Alberto Caero and Ricardo Reis, emerged in 1914. But then in 1915, another one that emerges, Antonio Mora, was a a defender of neo-paganism. And this neo-paganism had a lot to do with Pessoa's admiration of Greek culture. Uh, so, the, so the Greeks were pagan, and uh, so Pessoa had this idea that it would be wonderful to uh, revive the pagan spirit mm. in Portugal particularly, and also elsewhere. Through Antonio Mora, there's this all, all these essays that are written promoting the, this idea of, of neo-paganism. And Antonio Mora also was the author of a so-called dissertation in favor of Germany, so t- took the side of Germany in the war. However, Pessoa himself, himself tended to side with the Allies, somewhat reluctantly. So you, you find in Pessoa, he, he takes conflicting positions, and sometimes the heteronyms are used for that, or he, sometimes he doesn't even need heteronyms. Pessoa in 1915 wrote actually his first piece of journalism. He, he, he wrote quite a lot of articles about very topics throughout his adult life beginning in 1915. And in, in the first article he wrote, he said that a intellectual has a cerebral obligation to change opinion several times in the same day. Mm, so Pessoa was highly flexible mentally and was always changing opinion. Pessoa was was always coming up with these experiments. Each of the heteronym was a kind of experiment. Mm-hmm. And some of these ideas like his uh, cultural imperialism or spiritual imperialism, they were, they were experiments in a sense. 
But let's turn back to the the reason that I was uh, excited by this year in the first place, which was the literary magazine that you talked about. And in uh, in 1915, uh, there are lots of literary magazines in the U.S. and U.K. The little magazines uh, that I think they were called at the time, things like uh, Blast, and uh, I don't know when others started. Alfred Kramborg's journal poetry started around that point as well, 1913 maybe something like that. So this is an era of the little magazine, right? Uh, I guess this is a, a a big part of modernism at the time as well. That's true. And there were also uh, these little magazines in, in uh, Portugal. The magazine that Pessoa and his friends started called Orfeo was was by no means the first little magazine to come along. There there had been others. Mm. Orfeo also only had two issues that were actually published. So these they tended to be ephemeral, these small magazines. But Orfeo was, was just different because of its content. The project was to promote young, unknown, little published writers. And there was also a, a Brazilian connection. There was a couple of Brazilian poets involved. So there was this idea of embracing the Portuguese language, both through, through Brazil and, and Portugal. But also the, the type of literature that was, was published was, was quite different. And, and Orfeo really was the publication that brought literary modernism to, to Portugal. So it is comparable with those other modernist journals. Um, Pessoa himself was aware of these other journals um, and reading English, yes. etc. So there is, there is, I guess, that sort of wish to, you know, have a communication in some sense with the spirit of the times. I guess that's right. And Pessoa also he invented his own literary movements rather than simply, you know, adopting, say, you know, futurism or, or other movements from from France and elsewhere. Uh, he invented, he and his friends, there was a movement called Swampism, and it gets its name from a poem that Pessoa wrote in, in 1913 called Swamps. And it's a very kind of ultra-symbolist kind of poem. Swamps of yearnings brushing against my gilded soul. Distant tolling of other bells. The blonde wheat paling in the ashen sunset. My soul is seized by a bodily chill. How forever equal the hour. The tops of the palms swaying. The leaves staring at the silence inside us. Wispy autumn of a hazy bird's singing. Stagnant, forgotten blue. How quiet the shout of yearning that gives this hour claws. How myself dread longs for something that doesn't weep. My hands reach out to the beyond. But even as they're reaching, I see that what I desire is not what I want. Swampism was uh, symbolism kind of on drugs taken farther. So <laughs> symbolism, I'm talking about this hazy association where you have a sense of something beyond, all this, some, some beyond about what you're actually writing about. Mm -hmm. So you have all these strange metaphors and descriptions and twilight atmospheres and everything is indefinite. So I invented a, another movement called intersectionism, uh, which you can think of as cubism, perhaps applied to literature, where you have uh, these very different planes intersecting with each other. And then also sensationism. And uh, so there the, the important thing was to uh, be completely aware of sensation, to feel everything mm -hmm. as, as, as much as possible. So Pessoa uh, wrote many pages to describe these different movements. Right. And Orfeo helped to you know, promote this, this kind of writing. <laughs> Thank you.
Support for WFHB comes from Cardinal Spirits, located at 922 South Morton Street. Cardinal Spirits is an Indiana craft distillery in Bloomington, making whiskey, gin, vodka, rum, and liqueurs. Hours and more information online at cardinalspirits.com. Orfeo, again, I think the first issue is late March 1915, modernist in intent. Uh, it's also pretty fully Pessoa and, and Campos um, in terms of what's in the magazine. Of course, there's other writing, and we'll, we'll, we'll mention those as well. But um, as you say, at some point, it's his literary coming out. Let's go back a little bit and talk about these ideas of heteronyms. You know, it's one—it's obviously one of the major characteristics of Pessoa, as you've already mentioned. But uh, and you've already mentioned the three main heteronyms. Uh, Pessoa himself can be, I don't know if you would call it a heteronym or not. Uh, it's a question of, you know, when Pessoa writes as Pessoa, what does that even mean? I suppose that's well, a fair and, question. <laughs> yeah. It, well, in fact, that's uh, something scholars you know, debate about. Yeah. Uh, when writing under his own name, is Pessoa any more reliable or is that any more genuine than when he's writing under uh, some other name? Right. And, um, and the short answer is, uh, no, it's not, not more. No, <laughs> right. Not right. Right. Let's, uh, will you clarify really quickly too? Uh, because, you know, I think most people would say, why aren't these pseudonyms? And, you know, we need to go uh, some way to, to be sure about what a heteronym is. It's more than just a, another name. Right. So, Basoa, for his heteronyms, uh, invented actually other personalities. Um, they had different ways of writing, different ways of looking at the world, uh, different religious and political views. So their writing differed considerably. And so that's why Pessoa felt that they weren't mere pseudonyms because it wasn't just the name that changed, but uh, they were conceived as completely other. And they had their own biographies even. That's right. So invented biographies for yeah. them as well. B birth you know. dates and death dates and everything. Yes. And even astrological charts. Right. Pessoa yeah. was a very proficient astrologer. And that's actually an activity that got going in 1915. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think you made made this uh, comment in a book talk or uh, something on on the YouTube, uh, but you commented about the difficulty of being a distinct translator for each voice, you know, for each heteronym. How how does one man who may not be heteronymic, Richard Zenith doesn't have heteronyms who translate poetry, <laughs> right? You should have created heteronyms to translate each heteronym. I myself, and I, I think it's true for a lot of translators. Ideally, you want to become more a medium, let's say, for the, the writer you're mm -hmm. translating mm -hmm. and not have your own style intrude. Although, inevitably, I think uh, any translator, uh, there, there's something, in, in my case, something of Richard Zenith that's going to be there in whatever I translate. So you can't really lose yourself completely. And then in translating Pessoa or, or anyone else, and then translating these various heterodoms of Pessoa, you, you try, of course, to to become possessed in a certain way mm -hmm. of, of, of these different voices. In the case of Ricardo Reis, he's a classicist, writes odes in the style of Horace. In Portuguese, the, the syntax is very somewhat tortured syntax. And there in, in English, I deliberately did not make it quite as tortured. As, as it is in the original, just because it, as a translator, you make all these compromises. On the one hand, you want to be faithful to the author, but you also want to reach the reader. And so there's you know, difficulty enough just because translating somebody from a different culture, you, you, you want to be able to, as I say, to, to, to reach the reader too. Do you have a favorite 
a heteronym to translate that you think this suits me best, this one's easiest, or this one makes me work too hard? Or <laughs> Well, I usually like translating what's difficult. Uh, prefer, prefer to translate what's difficult. Hmm. It's more, more interesting. Mm -hmm. But with, with Pessoa, I, I, I find that whatever I'm translating at the moment greatly impresses me. So, so yeah, and it's my favorite at that moment. <laughs> but perhaps Alvaro de Campos. I'd have to say is the one that I that I think is uh, with with his motto to feel everything in every way possible. Mm -hmm. I, I think the one who is is the most 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 far reaching and and um, yeah, mm -hmm. so so maybe my favorite. Uh, so Orfeo uh, one, the first uh, again the first volume contained uh, a play called The Mariner, and uh, it's by Pessoa uh, or signed by Pessoa, and but it's called a static drama uh, as well. Do you want to uh, describe it a little bit? It's to, it reads a little something like Sartre, maybe. <laughs> you know, it's it's definitely it has that sort of um, existential yeah, feel to it. Indeed, like uh, like Sartre or, or even or maybe Beckett. Yeah, oh, totally. Uh, yeah. This idea of static drama was not actually original uh, with Pessoa. He, he got it from Maurice Metrelink, a Belgian mm -hmm. uh, poet, who actually won the Nobel Prize, I, I think in 1911, 1912, some, mm. somewhere around there, who had written plays in this style. But, but Pessoa seems to go even farther. So st in static drama, uh, nothing much happens. And there are these people who dialogue. And, and this is really in that kind of swampist or ultra symbolist style. So in, in The Mariner, which so published in Orfeo 1, that's actually his only complete play. So wrote lots of plays, but this was the only one he actually finished. And uh, so you have these three women in, a, in, in the room of a castle, uh, and there's a coffin there with a fourth woman. From The Mariner, a static drama in one act. A room in what is no doubt an old castle. We can tell from the room that the castle is circular. In the middle of the room, on a bier, stands a coffin, with a young woman dressed in white. A torch burns in each of the four corners. To the right, almost opposite whoever imagines the room, there is one long, narrow window, from which a patch of ocean can be glimpsed between two distant hills. Next to the window, three young women keep watch. The first is sitting opposite the window, her back to the torch on the upper right. The other two are seated on either side of the window. It is night, with just a hazy remnant of moonlight. And these three women talk about memories from the past. It's all very vague, their dialogue. First watcher, we still haven't heard the hour strike. Second watcher. We can't hear it. No clock is near. Soon it will be day. Third watcher. No, the horizon is black. First watcher. Why don't we amuse ourselves by telling what we once were? It's beautiful, sister, and always false. Second watcher. No, let's not talk about it. Besides, were we ever anything? First watcher. Perhaps. I don't know. But it's always beautiful, in any case, to talk about the past. The hours have gone by, and we have remained silent. I've passed the time gazing at the flame of that candle. Sometimes it flickers, or turns yellow, or more white. I don't know why this happens, but do we know, sisters, why anything happens? First Watcher, to talk about the past must be beautiful, for it is useless and makes us feel so sorry. And then one of the women remembers 
how she had dreamed of a, a mariner who was a castaway on an island and how this mariner was there on his own. And then so as not to feel sad about his past life, he invented a, a different life, a different past life. And slowly, bit by bit, created a life that he, he never actually had. And then it goes on and the you don't really know if there's there's the idea that actually these women, the watcher, watching women, they're, they're watching the, the fourth woman, who's uh, a corpse in the coffin, uh, maybe they're actually part of the mariner's dream. So everything is very dreamy. You never know quite where uh, where anything is and, mm-hmm. and, and what's, what's real and what's dream. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is presenting Fernando Pessoa with translator and biographer Richard Zenith. This first of two episodes focuses on Pessoa's breakout year of 1915, when he published several pieces in two issues of the Portuguese modernist journal Orfeo, pieces signed as Pessoa and pieces assigned to Álvaro de Campos, the heteronym Zenith calls the most restless, extravagant, and prolific. It's actually pretty good. It is, as you say, it's quite abstract. But the thing I liked about it, it was that, uh, you know, he no longer remembered his actual life. And right. so, so the you know, the life he made up was the only life that he could remember or recall. So it became his life. Yeah. So in a, in a way, the, the, the Mariner is, is a kind of pian to the imagination, right. to the power of the imagination. And, and it's interesting that that Pessoa wrote, writes that in 1913, probably only finished it in 1914. Mm-hmm. And, and that's when the, the three main heteronyms emerged in 1914. So the Mariner sets the stage right. and this idea of this very potent imagination that can do anything. And then Pessoa <laughs> then does this marvelous thing in many Right, right, right. So the three women, I mean, obviously, you know, this is just a game you play at some point, but the three women can be the heteronyms, the person, the the person in the coffin can be Pessoa, the imagination, the imagination is the Mariner. Yep. To Fernando Pessoa, after reading your static drama, The Mariner, after 12 minutes of your play, The Mariner, whose utter lack of meaning makes the sharpest of minds go dull and grow weary. One of the watching women says with languid magic, only dreams last forever and are beautiful. Why are we still talking? Exactly what I wanted to ask those women. Alvaro de Campos. The other major uh, Pessoa, uh, oh, excuse me, or, or heteronym work in Orfeo is by uh, Campos, and that's Opiary and Triumphal Ode. And Triumphal Ode has a bit of the futurist in it. Do you want to give a little bit of, uh, of what futurism is, uh, the Italian movement uh, by Marinetti? Marinetti had um, basically, uh, through a, a manifesto, started the movement. It was published in uh, Italy, but then also in Paris in uh, Le Figaro in 1909, and then quickly uh, gathered adherents, both writers and artists. And so it was an important movement in France and Italy, also in Russia. You know, there were uh, futurists elsewhere. So the futurists, they celebrated the modern age, machineries, motion. Uh, They were iconoclasts, wanted to do away with everything that was dusty and institutional, museums, academies, and then in their technique as well, 
was all about speed and velocity. In, in, in literature, they had this idea of parole in, in libertà, so words in freedom, the idea of, of the word being independent of this straitjacket of, of normal syntax. So sometimes they would have words just kind of appearing in on pages and not in sentences, but just playing off of each other in, in a kind of magnetic field. Mm-hmm. So so this is you know some of what futurism is about. Now the the triumphal ode, which Pessoa wrote in, in 1914, that ode is really what gives birth to Alvaro de Campos, mm-hmm. uh, who emerged a couple months after Alberto Caero. Alberto Caero is, is a poet of nature and who wanted to see things exactly as they are adding nothing to them and without interpretations. So he's all about seeing and uh, things are what they are. Then uh, Alvaro de Campos emerges shortly, uh, a couple of months later, and he's an urbane poet. So he's a poet of the city. Uh, the Triumphal Ode is not so much futurist in technique, but it is in its uh, subject matter because it's all a celebration of, of the city and machines and noise and, and so forth. By the painful light of the factory's huge electric lamps, I write in a fever. I write gnashing my teeth, rabid for the beauty of all this, for this beauty completely unknown to the ancients. Oh, wheels, oh, gears, eternal bridled convulsiveness of raging mechanisms, raging in me and outside me, through all my dissected nerves, through all the papillae of everything I feel with, my lips are parched, O great modern noises, from hearing you at too close a range, and my head burns with a desire to proclaim you in an explosive song telling my every sensation, an explosiveness contemporaneous with you, O machines. Kind of between Orfeo 1 and 2, and, and 2 comes out in late June. In between Orfeo 1 and 2 come Pessoa's own Antinous, uh, and that's written in English? In English. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. So that's written in English. And then Campos uh, writes Salutation to Walt Whitman in this ter- uh, in this period as well. So there's a lot going on here about sexuality, homosexuality, and uh, we can begin with Antinous uh, and how that expresses sexuality and, and, and where Pessoa is. Again, that's written by Pessoa. It's written in English. And in a way, you you discuss how when Pessoa writes in English, perhaps he's not necessarily being truer to himself, but he's being more hidden from everyone else. In the case of Antinous, yeah. one could argue actually that the fact he wrote, wrote it in English was a kind of a way to hide himself. And it was a way to also be a, be a kind of a, a heteronym. You can also argue that the narrator of the poem, who is the Emperor Hadrian, is kind of a heteronym. And, and also, the Hadrian of the poem is uh, like the Roman emperor in some ways, but but in other ways is, is rather different. He's addressing the corpse of his uh, lover, Antinous, who was a young Greek. Uh, they'd, they'd been together, and Antinous had drowned in the Nile. So, so it's a, a very long poem, actually. And Hadrian is there next to the, to the body of Antinous on, on a couch, remembering all the uh, sensual times that they were together. The real-life Hadrian had celebrated Antinous by making him into a kind of a god. So there are a lot of statues remain of Antinous from antiquity. Uh, also, there was a, a city that Hadrian founded that was called Antonopolis. Uh, he established a set of, of games, you know, sports, that were in honor of Antinous. So there was all these ways that he celebrated Antinous. But Pessoa 
uh, in the poem or his Hadrian feels that these establishing games in a city and, and so forth aren't, aren't necessary, that their, that their love will endure in a way. And, and, and the very writing of the poem will be a way of eternalizing, immortalizing Antinous. And so there's this lifting up the, the relationship to a kind of divine status. I, I would say it's its greatest love poem and it's Pessoa's greatest poem in English. Pessoa wrote many poems in English. His original ambition was to be a, a, an English poet. However, often they don't, his English poetry doesn't work so well because in a way his English was too poetic for writing poetry, if that makes sense. It was a kind of a bookish English. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it lacked the kind of blood and guts of a mother tongue. Support for WFHB comes from Limestone Post, an online culture and lifestyle magazine for Bloomington and beyond. Explore articles, photo essays, and videos on the arts, outdoors, local history, and community events. Limestone Post, writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. Online at limestonepost.com. You mentioned um, blood and guts there in terms of like maybe the language having more flesh to it or life to it. And, and that's exactly. that's certainly uh, how we would describe Kampos's uh, poetry and, and definitely has a relationship with Walt Whitman in form as well as content, even though in Salutation to Walt Whitman, it seems to be a reading of Walt Whitman kind of, right? It, it Like he's engaged with Walt Whitman's work uh, in an interesting way, but at the end seems to back away from it or back away from trying to be like it. Yes. In uh, Salutation to Walt Whitman, he's trying to outdo Whitman in a way, be, be more Whitmanian than Whitman. So there you get a, a lot of violent verses where where it's right. almost masochistic in, in, in a couple of in a couple of places yeah um, very much masochistic as much yeah. maritime ode as well um, and maritime ode as well yeah, yeah. alone this summer morning on the deserted wharf i look toward the bar i look toward the indefinite i look and i'm glad to see the tiny black figure of an incoming steamer it's still far away but distinct classic in its own way. It leaves a useless trail of smoke in the air far behind it. It's coming in, and the morning with it, and here and there along the river maritime life begins to stir. Sails are hoisted, tugboats advance, small boats jut out from behind the anchored ships. There's a slight breeze, but my soul is with what I least see, the incoming steamer, because it's with the distance, with morning, with the maritime meaning of this hour with the sweet pain that rises in me like a queasiness, like the onset of seasickness, but in my soul. I look at the far-off steamer with great independence of mind, and in me a flywheel slowly starts spinning. If we look at Maritime Ode and it moves through, as you say, this kind of masochistic expression of, of wanting to be uh, like a pirate uh, and have no uh, sort of no morality as you act, kill, maim, rape, steal, doesn't matter what it is, but to have no, no compunction about it, no guilt over it, it's just the way you are, you're acting as a pirate, but also taking the position of the victim. Make me kneel down before you, 
Beat and humiliate me. Make me your slave and your plaything, and don't ever deprive me of your contempt, O oh, my masters, O oh, my lords. To always gloriously take the submissive part in bloody deeds and endless sensualities. Fall on me like massive walls, O oh, barbarians of the ancient sea. Rip me and wound me, streak my body with blood from east to west, kiss with cutlasses, whips and rage my blissful carnal fear of belonging to you, my masochistic yearning to submit to your fury, to be the sentient, impassive object of your omnivorous cruelty, rulers, lords, emperors, pirates. Ah, torture me, rip me apart, and once I've been hacked into conscious pieces, strew me over the decks, scatter me across the waters, leave me on the voracious beaches of islands, satiate in me all my mysticism of you, engrave my soul in blood, cut and slash, O oh, tattooers of my bodily imagination, beloved flayers of my fleshly submission, subdue me like a dog that's kicked to death, make me the vessel of your lordly disdain, make me all of your victims." But then it moves further into saying, these are just my like literary thoughts. You know, these, how can, and it even asks the question, how can you think things like that? Exactly. Um, which, and then it goes into how he thinks things like that and why, you know, and, and other ways that he confronts, you know, how, how it is that one imagines these things. Because as the pirates are killing men and women and children, the poet is imagining having a child murdered by a pirate also and mm -hmm. feeling that feeling as well. Often in the campus, his motto was to feel everything in every way possible. Mm -hmm. So that meant feeling noble feelings, uh, sentiments, but also feeling take, taking the place of every person imaginable, including criminals, right. including you know, rapists, but also saints. In... Um, the, the maritime ode, that's actually only one section of mm. the ode is, as you described, where you, where you get right. uh, this violence and this masochistic wanting to be the victim, but also wanting to, seemingly wanting to inflict violence in, in, in others, harm in others. Mm -hmm. An inexplicable feeling of tenderness, a tearful and heartful remorse for all those victims especially the children. I dreamed of hurting when I dreamed I was a pirate of old, a feeling of regret, since they were my victims, a soft and tender feeling, since they weren't really, a confused emotion, bluish like a fogged window, sings old songs in my poor grieving heart. Ah, how could I think or dream those things? How far am I from what I was a few minutes ago? What hysterical feelings, first one thing, then the opposite, as the blonde morning rises, Funny how my ears hear only things that concur with this emotion, the lapping of the waters, the river waters gentle lapping against the wharf, the sailboat passing along the river's far shore, the distant Japanese blue hills, the houses of Almada, and whatever's soft and childlike in the early morning hours. A seagull passes by, and my tenderness increases. It's a, a large poem, which is, it makes it difficult to talk about, too, in a right. short amount of time. Right. Uh, but it's modeled after a, a, a Greek ode, and there's nine, more than 900 lines of verse. As in a Pindaric ode, there's three sections, strophe, anti-strophe, mm -hmm. and epode. So the first section is a more dreamy section and, and uh, a world of pure ideas and abstract things 
a, pl- a platonic world mm-hmm. of pure forms. Talks about the pure, far away, the indefinite, and an absolute wharf. Alvaro de Campos is just standing on the wharf in Lisbon as uh, throughout the whole poem, throughout right. this whole long ode. And then that section then modulates into the second section, in, in which uh, you have all this visions of the past, seems like memories of pirate days, and, and when the narrator himself, perhaps, was out on these seas and experiencing um, this very raw life or uncivilized existence. Right, right. It's very direct and crude and cruel. So, so, so the second section, whereas the first section is, is a, like a spiritualized imagination, the second section is a corporalized, sexualized imagination. It's like the exact inversion of the first section. Mm-hmm. And then the final section, the epode, is a, this halcyon, peaceful section where the, the poet returns to the present, immediately tangible world. My healthy, rugged, pragmatic imagination is concerned now only with useful modern things, with freighters, steamers, and passengers, with rugged, immediate, modern, commercial, real things. The flywheel in me is slowing down. Wonderful, modern, maritime life. Clean, fit, full of machines. All so well-ordered, so spontaneously organized. All the machine parts, all ocean-going vessels, all aspects of import and export trade activity, so perfectly integrated that everything seems to happen by natural laws, nothing ever colliding with anything else. Nothing has lost its poetry. And now there are also machines with their poetry. And this entirely new kind of life, this commercial, worldly, intellectual, and sentimental life, which the machine age has conferred on our souls, voyages are as lovely as they ever were, and a ship will always be lovely, just because it is a ship. Travel is still travel, and the faraway is where it has always been. Nowhere at all, thank God. In this one ode, you get all these different uses of the imagination. And there's this way to this idea of, of, of maritime life and of the ocean. I mean, this obviously also is, is harking back to Homer, an attempt there to kind of embody the whole of existence, actually. Yeah. So it's a very am- ambitious poem and a really great poem. But it works by accretion. You really need to, it's hard to convey uh, what, <laughs> right. what the poem is, is about in a few words. You really need to read it. You do say in the in the book, you call it his greatest single poem. In my opinion, is that just your yeah, yeah. yeah? Is that other other people's opinions? It is a great poem. I'm not going to disagree with you. It's it's one of the the pieces that you read as you read. You know, you're kind of moved into these places where you're like like you express the idea of you know this is this is terrible. You know, <laughs> these are terrible things to write and terrible things to say. And he uses the um, the figuration of the his flywheel ramping yes. up basically. You know, and, and getting more and more moving more and more quickly. And and the language moves that way. And then you've got I guess what is the the sort of font break that you know just is kind of like screaming like yelling on the page right um and that indeed yeah yeah, yeah and it's after that yelling that he says on the next page something in me snaps and he snaps and, and that begins the third section yeah into the, into the epode yeah, yeah. compass is permanently dissatisfied oh, he right. can never feel enough 
So you always want us to feel more, right. whether it's good things, bad things. What's important is to feel. Yeah, no, no, it's it, it's worth reading over and over and over again. It's it's really yeah. well done. I guess towards the end of that poem, he writes, "All this is beautiful. All this is human and linked to human feelings. So sociable and bourgeois, so complexly simple, so metaphysically sad. The diversified, floating life ends up educating us in humanity. Poor humans, poor humans, all of us. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good." In this year, when there's Orfeo 1, Orfeo 2, and Pessoa comes out, in a sense, uh, in terms of appearing as this great poet, one of the things you note throughout is is his megalomania, assured belief in him being the one that's going to lead the way to this Portuguese renaissance. Um, right. And this seems to be when that's happening. Like, he's, he's actually seemingly making it a reality in a lot of ways. These men in particular become something of celebrities with these two issues, right? Pessoa becomes a well-known figure. Yes, he does at, 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 that, at that point. I mean, a well-known figure among people who read. However, the newspapers made so much fun right. of, of Orfeo, claiming that they were all madmen. Right. They all, had escaped the insane asylum. Then actually widened the audience because some people became very curious. <laughs> right. So a lot of people went out who don't usually read literature went out to, to buy by the issue and it sold out or fail one quickly. But Pessoa, yes, he was in a way very assured or, or seemed to be very assured of his greatness. But at the same time, he was always full of doubt. What I would say is that he was a great actor. So him becoming great was also because he acted as if he were great. <laughs> and, and, and so it's, even though he was full of self-doubts, he wanted to create this new literature in Portugal and have these megal megalomaniac ideas. And he was the one who was going to be the new Camões. Of course, Camões is the Luís Vaz de Camões, is the, was the until then undisputed great uh, Portuguese poet back from the 16th century. Mm -hmm. So Pessoa proposed himself as the super Camões in essays he wrote in, in 1912, wrote and published. Nobody knew that the super Camões was Pessoa. <laughs> Pessoa knew. He right. was predicting the arrival of a, a super Camões. And this even before he had written anything to justify such claims. But the fact that he made those claims, I believe, was then part of what ended up stimulated him to fulfill those claims. Mm. So it's as if the claim of the greatness uh, was necessary for him to actually become great. Mm. There was like a, a will to genius that helped him to become a genius. Right, right. Uh, it's it's quite, quite, quite interesting. And I'm I wouldn't say it's unique in Pessoa necessarily, but, right. but he's certainly the, I think, the author who most embodies that technique or that experience. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is presenting Fernando Pessoa with translator and biographer Richard Zenith. This first of two episodes focuses on Pessoa's breakout year of 1915, when he published several pieces in two issues of the Portuguese modernist journal Orfeo pieces signed as Pessoa, and pieces assigned to Álvaro de Campos, the heteronym Zenith calls the most restless, extravagant, and prolific.
you want to like work hard to explain a lot of these things, right? You want to talk about static drama and you think to yourself, a drama is to, to do or to act and acting is fake and, you know, pretense is not doing, but yet you can still do quite a bit while pretending to be something else. You mentioned William James at some point. He's reading re- varieties of religious experience, but James is one of the first people who sort of talk about the fact that we have many personalities, many selves yeah. that we put forward. Obviously, Walt Whitman says this, you know, I contain multitudes. Um, Emerson talks about whim and having any new thought is a fine thought. You know, no one's going (laughs) to stick me with conformity. So, you know, this idea of like constantly acting is a part of Pessoa, but he's constantly also just questioning reality, right? Questioning anything beyond the words he's writing. And even those words then can be rewritten. And read exactly. Yeah. So there's yeah. there's there's no reality to reality for the most part. Well, I, I think reality in yeah. Pessoa is there's reality. It's just uh, fleeting. Mm, right. It's never settled. So right. it's always changing. Right. And that's what this acting. You know, he is one of his most famous poems. Uh, begins with poeta un fingidor. The poet is a feigner. Right. So this, but this constant feigning, it's not necessarily being false. But it's in in a sense of a good word is forge because forge can mean mm. counterfeit, but forge can also mean simply to create. Uh, so acting in, in Pessoa, that's what reality is. It's in the act. It's in doing. It's in pretending, and 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 then something exists until you change the tune. Let me ask a question about like trying to understand this in terms of relationship becomes the question, right? Is he only what other people think he is? Was it Mario? Yeah, Mario is yeah. his best friend. Yeah. yeah. So he seems to be writing to him in in ways that are consistent to a particular yeah. persona, I suppose. Is that is the consistency the reality? I'm not trying to say that's that he's not right that you can be anything in some sense, especially with words. And you can yes. act, you can obviously act in many ways, but it, as soon as you act in very different ways, then anyone you were acting with has to respond to those actions. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah, which makes life very difficult if you're changing your <laughs> actions with all the people you think you're that are, that think of you as a consistent being. So it's yeah. easier, obviously, to be an actor on the page or on the stage. Exactly. And right. in fact, you raise a good point. So Pessoa's uh, life does take place largely on the page and, and, and in his imagination. So there he's, and you know, through all these heteronyms, you know, of course they're not real, but they are a kind of reality for Pessoa. So, so he's able to, to be all, all of this you know, through dreams and, and imagination. Then in his daily, daily life, he, he could be rather unpredictable, but indeed there is a, a kind of consistency. He was very reserved uh, as a person. He was a faithful friend. He had friends and that he kept for many, many years. And these friends he would meet in cafes usually. And yeah, they would talk about politics and literature and, and so forth. It may explain why he was always a bachelor. I mean, he had one attempt at a, a love relationship with Ophelia Kirosh, whom he would meet in, in 1919. It was not, the relationship was never consummated. It seems to be, again, another experiment of Pessoa. Again, experimenting love, but it seems somewhat destined to, to failure from the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know? As you note know, throughout, uh, Pessoa is a, a kind of a writer who wrote a lot, didn't really produce finished things for the most part. Uh, I mean, he obviously finished many things also. I, I, it's one of those things that's interesting because he clearly has written many poems and, and written many pieces. And, and uh, so he, he did 
plenty of writing he finished, but there's always a sense that he's like that most of it's unfinished and that he had, you know, so many projects and part of what Pessoa is, is kind of an unfinished entity. And that's kind of how he's presented. Is there something missing from the work that that needed finishing or is it just the nature of his particular personality that or his character or you know the ability to need to start new things to need to not finish it or on the one hand he was a volcanic writer so he always had all these plans to go back and revise and finish but before he could do that then he had a new idea and started writing something else right so it did, as you say, uh, write a number of you know, hundreds of a be- beautiful finished poems. Right. His problem was larger projects. The, the Maritime Ode is remarkable because that's his longest finished poem, mm-hmm. you know, over 900 lines of verse. So there he pulled it off, you know, a large work. That, that's an exception. So he was a perfectionist, and most uh, writers reach a point where Maybe they're not 100% satisfied, but okay, we're going to publish this. Right. You know? mm-hmm. I, I've lived with this long enough. And Pessoa was not willing to, to do that. So he um, would leave unfinished these uh, imperfect works, which is part of what makes Pessoa fascinating and what makes him a great writer. Because you, you visit Pompeii, it's all, you know, all these ruins, but we're able to imagine what Pompeii was like based on the ruins. And, and with Pessoa, you have all these this unfinished work, but with our uh, participation, imagination, we're able to imagine the greatness that he was after, I think, often. And another thing is that the work is wide open because it's unfinished, so that there are many different ways it might have been finished and that we as readers can help finish in a, in, in a certain way. And there's some honesty also to this fragmentation, which I think we can appreciate today. Uh, Alberto Caero, whom Pessoa said was the master poet among the heteronyms, in one of his his poems, he said that nature is parts without a whole. And Pessoa said that was the greatest line of verse. So in nature, and by nature, it really just means all existence, is parts without a whole. That's our show. We'll go out with more of Chopin's Preludes, Opus 28, performed by Maria Joao Pires. Thanks to Richard Zena for his lifelong work of bringing Fernando Pessoa, one of the great European writers of the 20th century, to the broad attention of the English-speaking world. Zena's latest is his biography of the Portuguese poet, titled simply Pessoa, published by Livright. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Cade Young is executive producer. This is Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening.